This is the Rev Thinking Podcast, exploring the business side of running a creative studio in the motion industry. Here we believe the best way to deal with the future is to create it. I'm Joel Pilger. A world where AI pushes human creativity even farther isn't so hard to imagine anymore because it's right here, right now. But is AI a threat to motion design? Wait, what do I mean by motion design? And is motion design becoming increasingly ubiquitous in our world? Does it need its own lexicon? And what roles do education and community have to play in its future? Well, attempting to answer these questions, my guest today is Justin Cohn, the foundational motion design enthusiast, I'll call him collector of sparkly pixels, an unabashed technology addict. Justin and I skim a variety of motion topics and a few other controversies like why smartphones are rapidly becoming a thing of the past, all in this episode. I hope you enjoy the heady conversation. And oh, if you're listening to this podcast in say the year 2033, let us know if you're still using a mobile phone, okay? Some of the people who are most excited about the new kind of generative AI tools and workflows that we are building and experimenting with are, are, if you kind of back away, they're the people who also are probably the most threatened by them, really, you know, from a, from a job standpoint, like it's, it's people who maybe would have spent a day, you know, cranking out concept art, maybe using a collection of tools. And now they're like, well, I can jump into, you know, we have some like custom tools we built or, you know, whatever, whatever they use and they can do it much faster. We got an opportunity to pitch on something. And one of the guys on the kind of initial pitch call is one of our like senior 3D dudes. He's an amazing, amazing guy. He's worked on everything that we've done almost. It feels like it. Mark Steinberg. And he, he heard the pitch and he's like, oh man, you know, I've been, I've been building this custom AI model. Um, I'm going to try to use it on this pitch, right? So within 24 hours, he had already started creating amazing assets for this pitch. We hadn't even started resourcing people for the job. Like we, we, he, before we could even assign designers and other concept artists to this pitch, he had already started cranking out on us. And, and I thought, okay, that's amazing. But it also is challenging. In some ways, it's challenging to the business. He's moving so fast that our kind of existing pipeline for pitching and for, for working on stuff is, is feels slow. And right. So there's two ways you can react to it. You can be like, oh shit, you know, and, and I think that, that's natural and you can't ignore that response. But the other reaction is, okay, cool. So how do we, how do we rework our systems to incorporate this? And I, I you know, I'm sure we're going to do it. And lots of other people are doing this too. I don't mean to say that we're doing anything, you know, super special here. It's exciting. But I know there are a lot of people too who feel so invested in their tools and and have their identity kind of wrapped up in these things, and I feel bad for them because they are they are going to get probably left behind and they're going to feel the pain you know over the next six to eighteen months. I would say time and again, the people that I see who are making the most exciting work and high value work with these new tools are the people who um yeah, who who could theoretically be displaced by it, but they're the people who are just so enthusiastic about making amazing stuff that they are able to, you know, kind of get over themselves a little bit. It sounds that's probably not the right way to phrase it, but um, 
and I, it, it is, it's a really good lesson. It's, I also, at the same time that I'm saying that, at the same time I'm saying that, I also recognize that there's another counter argument that runs the narrative of, you know, it's kind of a, the, the kind of anti-capitalist argument, I suppose, which is that, you know, businesses are always going to be looking for ways to get labor cheaper and to squeeze more out of, you know, whatever they have. And so these tools are just um, new ways for businesses to eke out even more and to take, you know, more advantage of people and all that. Uh, and I, that's going to happen for sure. It's, I'm, you know, that's inevitable and it's happened anytime there's been this kind of technological disruption. But I don't believe that that, that behavior is what drives innovation and drives the best work in the field. It'll be the people, it'll be the business owners who see, okay, great. Um, these people now just got leveled up like five levels because of these tools they have now become even more valuable than they were before. And Mark Steinberg, the guy I mentioned, is like incredibly valuable, you know, for so many reasons. And now he's like Superman, you know, and, and along with a bunch of other people too. So that's the reality. That is not me being optimistic. That's not me like trying to spin it. That's just the way it is, you know? It's exciting. I mean, the one thing that I'm a little worried about, and this might, this, I don't know if this applies to like smaller shops as much, because like it's like not an issue in Amsterdam. But in LA and New York, I'm a little worried about how these tools encourage a lack of boundaries between disciplines. So hmm. a lot of what you can create, you know, is the kind of thing that maybe previously would have been the domain of a concept artist, you know, who's trained in fine arts and does like, you know, 2D uh, digital painting, or maybe you're creating uh, characters and character designs, right? That's a whole other you know, field. And in some places, you know, you have multiple people will dedicate to that uh, full time. And then so you you one person now is creating work that bleeds across departments or across teams and across existing kind of divisions of labor. That's not inherently a bad thing, but it can be organizationally very challenging, right? Because aside from all the egos and stuff that might get bruised by that, we, you know, like most places, you have a certain process where things start in this and they go through a chain, right? Well, these tools are kind of saying, yeah, I don't care about all that. Like, uh, you know, they, they take a dump on your process and they just they jump right to these outputs and, and it's a whole different way of working. So, uh, it, so far, I don't think it's been a big problem, but it's something that we're going to have to really adapt to at an organizational level as we get further and further down the line with these tools. You just reminded me of a really cool concept I got introduced to by one of your buck uh, peers. And in his talk, he talked about the, of course, the namesake of Buck, which is Bucksminster Fuller, and the quote about ephemeralization. Mm. And he, he was saying there's this concept called ephemeralization, which I think if I quote, get the quote right, Buckminster Fuller defined as the ability to do more and more with less and less until eventually you can do everything with nothing. <laughs> I love that. I don't think I've heard that before. Dude, it it so I I almost fell out of my chair and I was looking around this conference with a few thousand people and I realized that's the meta to this whole narrative that you and I are having right now. And there's a dark side to it and there's also a positive side to it because in a world that is constantly growing and evolving and it's hungry for content, hungry for meaning, it's hungry for nonstop innovation, uh sorry, innovation 
It's also hungry for efficiency because it wants more and more and more and more. Sure, there's this proliferation of content and screens, all this sort of stuff. And yes, when you look at the days of the flames and the smokes and how expensive it was and everything, everyone got disrupted because now we're doing more and more with less and less. And here it goes again. Here it happens again with AI. We're going to do more and more with less and less until we can eventually do everything with nothing. And I say, embrace it and benefit from it. Ride the wave. It's going to be exciting. I think we'll figure it out. Um, I'm not too, I'm not too uh, pessimistic about that. But would, would you agree this is just part of that ephemeralization? Yeah, I love that. It is a really interesting lens, I think, to look through. Um, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to put aside, I do have some ethical issues with this that I didn't have at the beginning that I'm, I think are going to get worked out. Like the biggest, especially with the visual, not so much with the large language model stuff, but with the visual tools like uh, Midjourney and, you know, to mm-hmm. a lesser degree, maybe Dolly, all the stable diffusion stuff. Um, it was trained on, you know, a lot of work that they, there was no consent for and all that. And initially I thought, well, you're just scraping the web. It's not illegal to scrape the web. But then I realized it's not really a question of legality, it, although it is. There are cases in the courts right now, you know, that I think are going to help us navigate these waters. But mm-hmm. it's the ethical side of it. You know, I, I work with people who have watched, you know, these models get trained on 20 or 30 images of theirs. And then the model can immediately turn around and produce work that is in the style that it took them 20 or 30 years to to make. And my, as an outsider and as someone who doesn't have a distinctive style, who isn't very, you know, artistically talented, I think that's amazing. That's so cool. And I look over at them and they're like in tears, right? There's this emotional reality. They're like, that's a gut punch, you know? And so that ethical side of things, I'm still struggling with. I'm very excited about what Adobe is doing with Adobe Firefly. Because at least the the promise and what they've said publicly is that it's trained on licensed imagery and and all this stuff. Ah. And yeah, so and the tool is also um, it's a multi kind of like a multimodal is the word they use. But the way to think of it is um, it, there's many ways to work with the tool that aren't just like text prompts, you know, uh, which is how most people think of these tools, right? There's there's you can almost it starts to become a little bit indistinguishable from photoshop at some point and and or any kind of you know compositing workflow that you might be familiar with and that's exciting because it first of all the ethical you know concerns around licensed imagery super important and then the second one is that it moves the narrative or it moves the whole industry forward to talking about these things for the real value of them which is tools workflows people i think anytime you've played with whether it's ChatGPT or Midjourney or whatever, and you type in, you know, dog flying in space or whatever, and you get some amazing image back, people jump to these crazy conclusions that like, well, there goes, you know, all the illustrator jobs and all of it. Like, no, because there's no control there. You need control, you know. I, I, I don't care how cool your client is. The first 10 images you generate, they're going to have so many notes, <laughs> you know, and yes. you need the ability to respond to those notes, respond to the needs in the marketplace, blah, 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 blah. And that requires control. And, and you know, right now, the kind of course tools like Midjourney and and uh, and the others, OpenAI's, you know, uh, various things they're working on, they don't give you that control. So I'm really excited about Adobe Firefly. I also watched their product. Uh, launch stream about a month ago. They released it it's on YouTube. You can find it. And I was I was really impressed by 
the how thoughtful they've been about this and the way that they're they're very aware of what I described earlier as the gut punch, right? That and and so they're taking that into account not only in their communications and their rollout, but in the tool itself. And so and it's not, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but what I'm hoping is that they set, they create a model for a new way to do this that can then be emulated and challenged in the marketplace. Um, I, you know, the way that Stability AI, the company behind Stable Diffusion and OpenAI have been doing, have been doing all this is like textbook Silicon Valley, right? Move fast, break things, disruption, yay, you know, bunch of bros high-fiving each other, whatever. Um, and that's great for, you know, investment and even for, for innovation and stuff. But then when it comes down to like applications and being ethical and responsible, they're not exactly the vanguards of any of that, right? You, you want to get somebody else in the room for those kinds of discussions. Right. Um, what's weird is Adobe, I'm not really sure Adobe historically has been that great at that in some areas, but maybe they've learned some of their lessons. They've got super smart people on Firefly. So I'm excited about that. We'll see where it goes, I guess. I didn't really mean to jump into AI, by the way, because I was thinking, well, but it's just hard not to because it's so ubiquitous. But, you know, when you and I talked before this, we were, we wanted to talk about motion design and kind of like where it's at and where it's headed, right? And I thought, well, yeah, we should maybe even start with just defining what, you know, what is motion design now? Because <laughs> I'm not even sure I recognize it that much anymore. Do you have like, do you think that you have a clear definition or understanding of what motion design even is? Clear? Um, <laughs> yeah. Depends how you, how you define the word clear, Justin. I, I mean, I don't. I have more of a, more of a, what is the word I'm looking for here? It's more like a framework or a category mm -hmm. of when I think of, it's a particular category of content mm -hmm. that I am now, I'm increasingly calling it motion. And just dropping dropping the word design, because like I'm noticing certain brands nowadays, they will go to say one of the companies I work with, right? So they might go to a, a motion design studio, but they will go to them and say, "Hey, you're our agency, and we want a motion forward, you know, brand." Okay. And they don't say emotion design; they just go, "Look, everything is in everything is going to be on a screen or a canvas that's alive." And so you're the smart people to help us get there. Yeah. I don't know that they call it motion design or animation or anything. They just say, look, it's a, it's a modern brand. It's a, a content driven brand. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm still searching for some of these words and, and adjectives. Yeah. It's consistent with, I think, a, a larger arc that we've seen developing since the early 2000s, right? When back then, well, coming out of the whole broadcast era, you know, we were talking, we talked about graphics, graphics, and which don't, that has nothing to do with motion, right? Because they were most, a lot of them were static, you know, it was things you'd throw up as an overlay on a live feed during a broadcast, you know, sports news, whatever it was. And it was a graphic. It was just there. And then motion graphics came in because the technology moved forward in a way that, hey, we can, we can actually make that little thing spin or whatever it is, or, you know, light on fire, or whatever it is. And then, so motion graphics dominated for a while as the, the term of choice. And then motion design started to supplant it, I think, because there was a a desire to inject more thoughtfulness into the term, into the industry. And now what you're proposing, and I see it too at Buck, is that design is kind of getting dropped. And maybe it's just because it's easier to say motion, but I, 
it's weird. It's not that design is being dropped from the conceptual framework. It's just being dropped from the, the term because it's more inclusive. So I have the, the definition that I came up with uh, for a conference maybe, oh gosh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was that I think that some, the term motion design is short for motion graphic design, which is short for graphic design in motion. Now that sounds very backward looking because of, well, why are we talking about graphic design now? Graphic design is super old, it's static. Why even talk about that? But it's interesting for a few reasons, I think, because when you say motion graphic or graphic design in motion, you're getting this like twin, there's this heredity that is really important. You're getting this kind of genealogy, right? All you've got graphic design. And the graphic design is about problem solving, about visual communication and the business value kind of, you know, very clear. And then you have in motion, graphic design in motion. Well, motion draws on a different tradition of storytelling, filmmaking, animation, right? Narrative, those kinds of things. You put the two of them together and it's peanut butter and chocolate. It's peanut butter and jelly, whatever you prefer. And what's crazy is when you start to break apart the components of a typical say graphic design execution, like think of a poster in your head, right? And the poster is probably going to have typography. It's going to have a photograph. Um, it's got an overall composition, the way things are arranged on it, right? And it's going to have color and all these things, right? Um, maybe it has like a, a drawing of a person or whatever. I don't know. Then when you put all of that in motion, you put all of that, those elements in motion, it's, it's, it, it, there's this, this tendency to think, okay, now it's just a moving poster. It could be, right? But what's actually happening is each one of those components explodes into its own art form. So photography, the photography that you had in your poster of whatever, a surfer, you know, going through a tube and a wave. Well, that's not photography more. It's cinematography. And cinematography is, you know, incredibly complex. <laughs> Way, I mean, not that there's anything you know, simple about photography, but it's incredibly complex. So now you've got cinematography involved. When typography moves, you're now tapping into all sorts of weird human perceptual issues around legibility and contrast and what we're wired to pay attention to and how long we're wired to pay attention to it. These are things that UI designers have to think about all the time, right? How big is the type? Is it moving? What does movement mean? How is movement a guide from one place to another? All these things. And then obviously the overall composition of this thing now is moving. And so you, it, it gets incredibly complex. You're, in, you're adding this whole new dimension to it. And so I, I said, uh, I've said many times that motion design is to the 21st century what graphic design was to the 20th century. Graphic design didn't really come into its own until the 20th century. I mean, it, it's existed argu arguably much longer than that. But because of mass, mass media advances, it, it couldn't really proliferate you know, the way that we think of it now until the 20th century. Same thing with motion design. And in the same way that motion and that graphic design was ever present to the degree that we kind of stopped seeing it, even though it's around I me, mean, I'm looking at my webcam right now. And there's a Logitech logo right next to my right next to my camera. And you know, graphic design is, is literally everywhere around you. And it's happening with motion design too, right? So it's, it's ubiquitous. And just like water for fish, it's really hard to see it because of that. You know it when you see there's a felt sense around it. Just like if you take a fish out of water and it starts to die, it'll happen to, you know, motion designers too. Take them out of motion design and they start to flop around and, and die. But it's getting harder and harder, I think, to define the boundaries. And that's not a bad thing. 
it's challenging sometimes for clients because they don't know where the boundaries are. And like you said, they don't care. They just want to be relevant. They want to be modern. They want to speak to their audiences. And they have this intuitive understanding that motion is the way to do that. In most cases, there are some cases where I think it's not true. And so, yeah, we, I see, you know, at Buck, we, we've been shifting a lot of our efforts are into this just big motion, you know, like, and, and everything we do, you know, always has, even when we do, it's interesting, even when we do static design work, yeah. You can sense motion in it. It's like it wants to come to life, you know? It's just uh-huh. in our DNA. And I think that's probably true for a lot of studios. So it's a really interesting time for us. Um, and I'm. it's going to get even more interesting with AR. You know, AR is still struggling to, like, you know, reach the mainstream. But these, this next generation of AR devices is really important because it's not just the incremental improvements we've seen before. It's not about higher resolution, higher higher pixel density and all that. It, it, they are gonna have all those things. But these new devices, and um, we're working on you know projects that involve them, is the importance of the emphasis on what we're calling pass-through experiences, right? So that means that you've got the goggles on and they look just as dumb as ever. They're, they're big and whatever. Apple will make them look as sexy as they can, but they're still gonna be strapped to your face, right? But the big difference is that you're going to be able to see through them, right? Because of cameras that are mounted on. So you'll really be looking at your world. Um, it'll look like you're in VR, but you'll be looking at your the real world. And again, they're still going to be too big, I think, to get mass adoption. But for motion designers, for people in, in the world of motion design, it's about to become really, really interesting and really exciting because the markup language for this kind of pass-through AR experience is motion design. It is, it's essentially, it, it's like the, the, the way that we're going to understand our world through these experiences is, is motion design. Everything that you're going to see is motion design. So the, the, what I think is interesting is the way that the walls between UI and to a certain degree UX, but the walls between UI design and motion design have almost completely crumbled. I mean, the, you can't really be a contemporary UI designer and not have at least some familiarity and comfort with working in motion. And, and, I, and now, because kind of getting vice versa too, almost every motion designer that I know has at some point had to animate an interface or dream up an interface or, you know, do some product visioning or whatever. Some of, you know, and that can be really tedious. It's different. It's not everybody likes it, but. There's a real interesting exchange going on there that I think over the next, let's say, five to 10 years will be a huge opportunity. Creative opportunity, yeah, but also business opportunity as well. I'm really excited about that. If I step back and I think of, we, we now are in this world where motion is becoming ubiquitous, as you said. Mm-hmm. What is the impact it's having on the world? When you step back and look at like what the world was like maybe before you and I were even born, and then we, then we look at it today, because I'm seeing motion as this very important and meaningful dimension to what it means to be a human being on this freaking planet. And, and if that's true, don't we as an industry, we'll call it the motion industry for the, for the time being, mm-hmm. don't we have, um, I don't know, an important part to play and a responsibility to play in whatever that future is we're all creating on the planet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I think in order to think clearly about some of the things you're saying, people, which uh, in this case, I I don't think includes us, but people are going to have to let go of a few ideas that are going to be really hard to let go of. One of them 
is um, the idea that this thing, and I'm holding up my phone, right? That this thing is some kind of logical end. This that we're going to look back on our phones in about, I'd say, maybe seven to ten years, and we're going to think, "Do you remember when we used to walk around with those things in our pockets, and we would always pull them out, and we look at them, and we we did everything? Do you remember you used to have to type on this tiny ass little keyboard? And do you remember that that was so funny, right? That is going to happen. This this thing is an intermediary. It is not the end all be all that most people think it is. We've wrapped our identities around them, so I get it. And even me saying that is going to trigger a lot of people. This thing is is clunky. It's not ideal for most things. So you have to be willing to let go of a device that right now is central. I'll tell you what, 80% of the work we create is for this damn little thing. And I say we meaning Buck. And so it's really hard to imagine the world beyond it. Okay, you got to let go of that if you want to think clearly about the future. The other thing that it's hard to remember is that things like writing <laughs> and, and, and to extent, by extension, reading, that's a technology itself, right? You know, the ancient Greeks did, didn't have that. They didn't have, uh, you know, distribution for written things. They talked to each other and they remembered what they said to each other. And they had tricks for that. They would make songs to remember, you know, 30,000 line poems or whatever, whatever it was. And uh, when when writing started to become a technology that was clearly going to be dominant, there was a lot of pushback, including from a guy you may have heard of uh, named uh, Socrates, <laughs> Plato. Actually, it's Plato that pushed back on it, not Socrates. But Plato was, you know, his amanuensis. So Plato, they, they all kind of were like, oh, man, I don't know about this writing stuff. <laughs> like, it's and, and and well, now I'm getting it wrong because actually Plato, Plato I guess, was writing. But it was, it was Socrates that was like, you know, we we we're going to lose so much of our humanity to writing, you know, because we're going to our, our brains are going to get flabby. And, and and he understood it for what it was, it was a technology. And he knew it was going to be disruptive to use a word we use now. Right. Well, again, we kind of have to let go of some of these these ideas if we want to think about the future clearly i i feel like motion is helping usher us into a new era that will be more human centric and that's i will have to dive into that but it's more human centric in the sense that you won't be looking down at your screen and therefore not at somebody's face or their eyes you will be looking up and out at the world more that's going to start soon, you know. Again, the, we've got massive miniaturization problems on the technology side, and, uh, but it, one thing I've learned one thing in my 45 years in this life is that you don't ever tell technology it can't do something. It may not happen on the time scale you want, but it's going to happen. Um, so the motion is ushering us towards this disillusion of of technology in general. It's it's I think it's it's grabbing our hands and saying, look, we've got a long way to go, but we are working towards a human-centric way of interacting with each other and the world. Now, the challenge is going to be, the, the promise that you hear from Silicon Valley and from a lot of our clients is the reason the AR and these mixed reality experiences are so compelling is because now you can interact with each other in a way that's more authentic and more direct. I'm not 100% uh, sold on that yet. I think that there's still going to be this massive layer of distraction on top of those experiences, right? So even though you and I are looking at each other eye to eye, because we're both wearing these cool AR, yeah, exactly, these cool AR goggles that allow us to do that, right? 
I also know that while you're looking at me, you've got, um, you just got uh, uh, an update because one of your stocks is tanking. And then uh, you just also saw that, that your favorite sports team is kicking ass. And oh, by the way, that bet you made is also going to do well. All this is happening, you know, in kind of in real time. I, I'm having my own experience, you know, with all my own extra layers of distraction. And motion is going to be actually the kind of, evil puppeteer for a lot of that stuff right because we're we're all going to start make, we're going to be clients are going to come to us and say i want to i want to have the cool widget that's in the corner of your you know in your peripheral vision so we're gonna have to get through that period <laughs> and and i you know i i don't know if it's gonna be better or worse than what we have now um but ultimately what i i what i wonder and what, I, what i'm curious about is that if we are just bending back ultimately towards a, a kind of post um, a post text, even like a post visual way of interacting with each other. Um, in, in which case, you know, motion might be the architect of its own demise. I don't know. The movie that I think about the most with all this, because I've still yet to see anything nearly as good at predicting all this stuff is the movie Her directed by Spike Jones, which if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in the last two years, watch it again. He, man, they nail so much. And think about when you're watching that movie, think about the role of motion design in that movie. It's pretty fascinating. And they work with some badass motion designers, by the way. David O'Reilly is not really a motion designer. He's more of an animator. But he worked on a lot of the what I would call kind of motion designy moments in the movie. And motion design and animation in that movie is it's, a lot of it is around entertainment. It's, it's about these moments of escape and, and um, moments of, of you know, willful distraction. And I think that's telling. A lot of the um, kind of more uh, data-driven interactions in the movie happen in the ear of the the main character, the played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, and and they happen uh, through just conversations that people have with each other. And so it's a really interesting model he's putting forward there. Right? It's not that this stuff is going to go away. It's just that I think we're going to start putting motion and animation and things in in a corner and, and trying to control them a little more right now it's like you know motion everywhere if there's a screen and it has pixels or it can move motion you know put the motion on it and that's okay it's just going to be that way for a while that's what the market wants or whatever but it will i think burn itself out at some point i don't it's going to take a long time but i'm, ex I'm excited about that in a way because it's, it's finally like maybe getting back to a more human way of interacting with each other i don't know that was a well, great, great, rant. great, <laughs> no, great rant and great, um, I think a great observation there. I was going to offer another reference point to the movie Her, which I also, I saw that maybe six or nine months ago. And I was like, yes, that's really interesting. Um, another data point is Swan Song. Did you see that film? It's on, it's an Apple TV movie with um, the Academy Award winner actor that I could never pronounce his name because he was in Green, 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 what was the movie? Green, not green, green card, green. Oh, yeah. Jared Depardieu? No, no, that was green card. <laughs> Wait, I'll get it because it was Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris and Glenn Close, um, Swan Song, but also uh, uh, another similar vision of the future of what, and it, and it wasn't, it was like you said, it wasn't a heavily motion designed experience that they were having. It was more audio and a mixture very tastefully done but anyways all that to say um when you you were you were driving on this notion of human centric which is super refreshing because in a way 
like anytime there's a new innovation, right? We we tend to embrace it. We over what we over uh, we double down on it. We over uh, integrate it. We go that's the coolest thing, and we go way too far with it. And then there's some sort of a coming back to now. Let's put it into some sort of a more balanced uh, place in our lives and, and in humanity. And I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen, right? When I think of AR, are we all, we're all going to be walking around with goggles and glasses and whatever, you know, five years from now. And we're going to think that's normal. Just like you make such a good point. I can't use my phone right now and put it on, on camera. But just like right now, if you're, if you're on a subway, you know, like every time I'm in New York, I'm always amazed how there's 100 people here and 99 of them are doing this. Right? And I love the point you're making of there. I get it. I'm like, you're right. We are going to look back and be like, oh, do you remember back in the 20 teens when everyone was just doing this all the time? Because we think that's normal and it's not. And similarly, when the goggles arise and we all are looking through goggles, we're also 10 or 20 years after that going to be like, oh, do you remember how quaint it was when everyone was walking around with these crazy ass goggles and whatever lenses and this and the other? But it all comes back to a larger vision, and I'm wondering if you could even maybe take a stab at if motion is going to help us move towards a more human-centric what, what way of connecting and, and relating as human beings. Do, I don't know. What, what's, what's the role? What part do we have to play in that? I mean, where, where does that lead us? I don't know. I mean, I feel, I used to think that um, it was kind of incumbent upon us as motion designers to like, I don't know, take the reins or whatever, right? And this is something you see graphic designers or traditional kind of designers talk about this a lot, you know, the responsibility of the designer. And um, on the one hand, I agree, you know, being able to manipulate these media in ways that can change the way people perceive the world and think about each other, it's a, it is, you know, with great power comes great responsibility kind of thing. But the re- the realist in me says, cool, how are you going to pay your bills? You know, it's kind of like there's the reality of the marketplace is um, ultimately the kind of judge of this stuff. And so what I see is that I think the best thing that motion designers can do right now is to be aware that there is going to be a shift. There's a shift right now around AI and these shifts are going to keep happening. And your, <laughs> I think your responsibility is to to be aware of them and, and participate so that you can bring, hopefully, good taste and beauty to the world. That's about all we can hope for, I think. I, 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 I'm too old to, to kind of sign up for these ideas that I'm going to change somebody's mind with, you know, a piece of animation. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Uh, it's whatever that is, it's really hard to do that full time and, and, and make a living at it. Um, cynical, sure. But as I said, realist. Um, so, you know, one of like a very practical, uh, very practical uh, application of what I'm talking about is because AI now is you know doing what it's doing. You, as a motion designer, probably should start thinking more in terms of systems rather than um, single creations. Like for the last 20 years of motion design, we have been absolutely seduced by each other's creations, and what I mean by that is 15 seconds. 30 seconds of beauty, right? Like, and I still, that's why I open up Instagram every day. It's not to look at my friend's kids. I want to see hotness. I want to see things moving. And I, and I share them. If you follow me on Instagram, you know how much it's probably annoying how many stories I post of other people's work. And and I love it. I love it. I love it. I do. 
and that's cool. It doesn't have to stop. But we, what, what's, what the market is starting to demand is people who can think systematically so that you're not delivering 10 things. You're creating systems that can deliver 10,000 things. And this is, again, not conjecture. We are doing this. Many studios are doing this. Buck is doing, has been doing it for a while. And, and um, it's, it's a different way of thinking. It's hard, you know, because what you're really doing is you're kind of, you're trying to basically bake in art direction in the form of, you know, these kind of guardrails, technological and creative guardrails. You know, you you help the client establish what those kind of guidelines are, what 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 it is that matters, and then if you're talented, uh, creative, you can then translate those into yeah, a kind of a framework, right? And then then you use that framework working alongside automation to help the client generate whatever they need to generate all the disposable media that they need for social media and the 4,000 screens around us all the time. And that is, that is a big shift. It, it's, it requires a bit of dissolution of the ego. And I, I think it's interesting, by the way, that motion design now is far less driven by superstars than it used to be. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? You would rattle off all the names of the people, you know, the, the Karen Fongs and the Ash Thorpes and the, you know, you, you, everybody had their, their list of people that they loved, right? It's really hard to do that now. Ask a student that's graduating from school right now from one of the big, you know, art school, SBA, Ringling, SCAD, whatever. Ask them to name their top five favorite studios. Not gonna be able to do it. They may, they may be able to do three or four. Five is really hard because they don't think in those terms anymore. It, there's a kind of, it's almost like the individuals and these brands around some of this stuff have to take a back seat to these larger demands of the marketplace. That For some people, that's really exciting. And for some people, it's going to be like the end of their careers. They don't want to do that anymore. And I get that. You know, It takes the auteur element out completely. And we are going to lose stuff. Uh, social media is, I mean, I could, we could do a whole hour on the damage that social media has done to motion design and to our community. Um, and at the same time, it's paying the bills. So it's like this, we have such weird bedmates in this world and we are going to I think, continue having that for the next, I don't know, decade more forever. I don't know. So now I'm tormenting myself here because I feel like there's three or four threads that we could spend another hour on. So this is the moment when I say, okay, Justin, we're probably just going to have to do another podcast, you know? And, and another and another, right? So this will be like a biannual event or something. But to try and keep us within some reasonable time frame here, when you uh, the, the systems thing you were just describing is a really interesting question because it, it gives rise to a question I've been asking. And that is as motion scales and it becomes even more ubiquitous, it's part of the human experience, if you will, every brand is going to speak this language and so forth. And like you said, that also puts into different forces in play. And you talked about how now the important thing for uh, these motion things at scale is to be able to deliver systems. I'm curious if I ask you this question, what your thoughts are. Is it time for us to develop, if we're developing systems, don't we need like a more common language or vocabulary or um, like a lexicon because I know I see it all the time that, that you know, I could, I could just rattle off terms, right? I could be like, what's a ripomatic versus an animatic versus a previs versus a, right? And then I could go down, I could give you a thousand different terms 
and you're like, I don't know, you say tomato, I say tomato, but clients are wondering, what do you mean by that? Cu- customers and you know, consumers, I mean, all of us as human beings, what's ARVR? I mean, the terms and the this and that. Is, the, is there going to be a need for us to like, kind of bring forward a common language, just like the architects did maybe a couple hundred years ago? And as the industrial designers did, and as the graphic designers did, right, they all kind of figured out their The discipline. broadcast world was really big on this, right? Because they needed a shared language. Lower thirds, snipes, bumpers, all those things, right? Right. <laughs> and I, but I, what's interesting is, and again, this is probably because it's a little before my time, I don't know how institutionalized those terms ever were. Like, I don't know if there was a governing board that said, this is a lower third. It, they arised organically out of need, right? Because people were trying to communicate to each other in the control room. And they were like, that's not a lower third. Damn it. That's a bug. Give me the lower third, you know, and, and that kind of thing. It, the lower third, it takes up, you know, the lower third of the screen. Um, and so uh, th- that, you know, I think I do see some hints of that starting um, around these giant systems, right? Because every system is made up of various components that may or may not interact with each other. And you need a clear way to say, I need you to work on this part of that system. <laughs> and maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it's like a framing mechanism or whatever, like a visual frame, you know, kind of thing. So I really, I kind of hope we do come up with a new lexicon around this stuff because lexicons not only help us do work more collaboratively and efficiently, they actually it, it counterintuitively make uh, an industry more inclusive because when you have a lexicon that everybody pretty much agrees to, you can use it as part of the educational process and part of the onboarding for new talent, but also for new clients. And that is crucial. When you don't have it, you're basically just throwing people in the deep end and saying, figure it out. See you later. You know, it's due Friday. You're like, ah, what? You know, and, and that's not right. cool, especially for young people. So I hope we do, but I'll be honest. I, I don't see it yet. I, part of it is this, the change, the rate of change is so fast it's like, I think we probably have come up with some terms and they've already been forgotten, you know, because they, something has moved on, you know. I'm thinking now a little bit about social media and the way that we we do, we, there is a, a kind of a lexicon there. You know, if I say carousel, you know that I'm not talking about uh, ponies that go up and down in a circle. You know exactly what I mean by carousel. It's images and media that you can flip through from left to right, right? And yep. and so when a client says we need a carousel, with, you know this and that, you, you, that is you know helpful. And social media has it's, it's just a, a bewildering array of you know, especially around on the performance side of things when you're trying to measure you know the efficacy of these things. There's a lot uh, there, but on the creative side, it's really interesting. I, I, I don't know. I think I probably, there probably is a lexicon that, that we've probably been using and I haven't even been aware of it. You know, just like those people in the control room once upon a time that came up with the term lower third, you know? And snipes. Well, I ask it because I have a little like skunk works thing that I've been playing with inside of our community where we have, you know, about 500 owners and I want to see if we can take a stab at this thing. But I love that you, you put your finger on the power of creating a common language, whether we call it a lexicon, right? Or a dictionary, whatever that thing is that I think it is an innovation that's a lot like the Gutenberg's printing press, it, right? It creates this common mechanism and it's distributable and it is, it is more inclusive. And I love that you tied it back to education because when I think of like where motion is going, like as an industry, as a, I don't know, a feature of what modern humanity and life on planet earth looks like, 
I think, well, what are some of the obstacles and the roadblocks that still stand in our way? What are the things preventing us, right? And language or vocabulary might be one of those things, but you touched on the other one, education. Like, I think we've got so far to go because, right? Like, I, I could probably just let you riff on this for, for a while, but let me just add to that diversity, right? So go, education and diversity. What, why, do, why do we need those? This is something that I've been struggling with for a long time. I taught at SCAD for a year. And um, after I was kind of like, I burned myself out in New York a little bit. And I, I was like, I need a, a pivot point. And the chair or the dean at the time was gracious enough. He's like, just come down and teach. If you like it, cool, stay. If not, it, it'll be a year that you learn from. And it ended up being that. Uh, but not because I didn't like teaching. I loved it. My my wife, though, was like, we were living in Savannah, Georgia, and I was like, what is she going to do in Savannah, Georgia? She's a motion designer trying to work in Savannah, Georgia before the whole remote thing. All right. Sorry, that was a digression. But I think, you know, the kind of the institutions that are that have committed heavily to motion design, I think are still relevant, like SVA, Ringling, SCAD. And then, you know, there's a bunch of animation centric uh, schools, CalArts and all the others. But and they, they, I think, are still going to be super relevant. And we're going to look to them, you know, for, for certain guidance. But there's this incredible gap out there that I don't know how to address. I mean, so you have people like Joey Corman, who's behind School of Motion, who's created a platform that I, I admire greatly. I think what he's done is really cool that, you know, he's basically yeah, giving people it. literally around the world. And I, I can't remember, but he... He has an insane number of people from other countries, from outside, you know, the U.S. and, and Europe that take his courses. Um, and that's cool. He's serving a market there um, that's awesome. But then there's this big gulf between, say, School of Motion, which is, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars it is per course. And then, you know, you've got the SCADs and the SBAs and the other $30,000, $40,000 a year. There's this huge gulf in the middle where uh, I don't see a lot happening. And and we, we we look, we're trying all the time to find people at Buck. And, and I know we're not alone in this. Everybody's trying to find talent in the unusual places because we do need the diversity, right? We're getting a lot of the same people, people like me, who grew up with a fair amount of privilege, um, who grew up going to art museums for fun and, you know, learning that, yeah, you can be a designer for your job. Well, that's cool. I'm glad that we all are on the paths that we've been on, but there's a huge group of people out there, the 80% in the middle of the bell curve who are not even aware that this is a field. Don't, they don't know that, you know, you can make a, a good or really good living at it and that it can be a, a pathway to financial independence and all these things. And so I don't know how we reach those people. I don't know how we serve them. Historically, I used to think, um, okay, uh, state institutions and, and, and community colleges, they're going to pick up the slack. That doesn't really work for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's really hard to find the educators that have the industry experience um, to kind of you know lead those classes and, and and direct those programs, those kind of things. But I also think that I made the mistake of thinking that people are going to be interested in motion design as a full commitment as their educational journey, right? The, I think the way to 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 reach these people is to understand that motion design is one of the tools that creators, which is such a hot term now, but the creators use, right? And they don't really think about it, right? When you're, creators reach for motion design when they know that they need uh, that moment in their, in their, whatever they're creating. They need to drag somebody's eyeballs across the screen. They need to transition from one thing to another. They need to break down a complicated concept into simpler bite-sized nuggets. They reach for motion design instinctively, right? They don't, 
maybe even know that it's called motion design. They just know that I need to make something move and it needs to be cool. And that's how we should be approaching the education, I think. It's like, let's, let's, let's not worry so much, at least in the early days of the education, let's not worry so much about whether this is motion design and all this kind of academic stuff. Let's just slip it in. <laughs> let's make these programs that are essentially empowering people to create with a capital C underscore all that stuff to create. And yeah, well, motion is not going to be a, a, probably a pretty big piece of it, but, but that's cool. We'll just, yeah, you, you may have to use these tools to do it and all that. And as they mature, they'll, and as they enter the, the workforce and they start to really put these things to the test, I believe they'll kind of organically realize okay yeah so motion design is incredibly powerful and it's a thing around which i can you know make efficiencies that will drive my margins higher and all these things that become really that are really boring when you're a student but become important later <laughs> i think that's one way yeah yeah i don't know i mean I, yeah what do you think yeah the thought i was having was when i was three years old and i was in montessori the montessori model is one where you kind of take kids and you put them into a space and you say, hey, over there, you can play with color. Over there, you can play with letters and words. And over here, you play with numbers. And over here, and then you kind of let the kids go and they, right? And they, and they kind of find and make projects and things. And I was like, that's a little bit also like a liberal arts education. Like, you're going to take some, right? You're going to take some history and some anthropology and some English and some language. And we're going to like see where all that goes. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool to think of a, a creative education where, yeah, you're in an environment where there's all these options. Play here, explore that, try this. Oh, and there's this a little zone over here where you can go over there and do that whole motion design thing. And some, and some people go over there and they just light it up. They go nuts. Other people are like, hmm, that's cool. I've kind of got that in my backpack. I'll take it with me. But you don't go into that program saying, I'm going to get a four-year motion design degree. And when I graduate, get a job at Pixar. I guess that's a different... yeah. I will I say, this is one thing, when I was at SCAD, and I was there as a graduate student, so I was only there for two years, they were really good at this. And, and they, because when, when I was a grad student, and I don't know if this has changed, I hope it hasn't, but there was a lot of freedom, and I learned so much from the undergrads because they let me. And, it, and I could go, and in the building we were in, Montgomery Hall, it's where all the animation stuff was. So there, was, there were light boxes, there were stop motion setups over there, there was a green screen, there was a motion capture studio, there were you know, all the toys that you needed. And if you wanted the training a lot, you know, it was all there. But, but what really made the magic happen was that SCAD let us interact in a way that maybe the other institutions maybe are scared of because they want to keep you on a track and they want to make sure they're checking off all the kind of, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, the, the, the pedagogical things they have to check off. Um, but I think what you're describing is Montessori thing is like, I'm sure it was on purpose, but that is what it felt like. It was like a Montessori environment. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's so freaking expensive. You know, SCAD is good about, you know, and a lot of schools are good about scholarships and things, which is great, but that's not really the scale we're talking about. We need to, we need to scale it to like tens of thousands of people. I really want, mm -hmm. I really want to go to high schools and talk to thousands of kids about how they can get into this and show them the pathway um, yeah. and talk to their parents too. Because when I used to do tours at SCAD, we all had to do tours, of, you know, incoming prospective students. There was a, a lot of anxiety from the parents. And this is true um, uh, for a lot of immigrant families um, in particular. And my wife is from Mexico. So I feel like I have some latitude to talk about this because, you know, when, if you're a first generation uh, you know, immigrant, 
um, coming into this country, you want to make sure that you're going to have a good living, you know? And so saying, hey, I want to be a, a motion graphics artist, <laughs> which you can't even explain what that is, you know, that can be really scary to parents, uh, you know? And so I spent a lot of my time, you know, kind of promising them that if the students were, were genuinely locked on and they really cared about it, that they would be fine. And I don't regret ever saying that to any parent ever because it, for the most part, worked out. Um, and so it's, it's not just the students, it's the parents as well. It's, it's a kind of it's a cultural shift. Um, I do think this creator movement, my dog in the background, unfortunately, this creator movement, it is, I think, helping change that a little bit. You know, I, I, I noticed, uh, recently WPP, big holding company, right? They just bought a giant influencer agency, right? Now, influencing is a dirty word for creator, but there's the, now the market is understanding the value of what these people are doing. And I say these people, I mean, individuals mostly who just make shit because that's what they're compelled to do. And they teach themselves the skills and they learn it from each other. They do it. And I think one of the positive knock on effects of that is, okay, now we have an opening to talk about motion because they're, they're listening. They, they're, you know, really curious about it. And we should just do it younger and earlier, you know, and to be honest too, man, a lot of the, a lot of the jobs that, traditionally have been looked to as, um, you know, high paying, high, high skilled jobs, they're going to be automated away. Uh, and, and our, our field will definitely feel the, the, the impact of automation, but because it's centered around creativity and this intensely human emotional kind of core, it's going to take longer than it will for the other fields. So I think we actually have, you know, as, as a motion, as a motion design industry, we have kind of an interesting argument to make. Um, that's made me overly optimistic, but that's kind of how I feel about it right now. So with that in mind, I was thinking of, man, um, really interesting point about the influencer and the creators and how those are coming together. Um, I, I'm tempted to almost try and connect this education thing that we're talking about to another need, but this might almost be on a whole nother podcast. Cause I'm about to say the, I'm about to say the word community because that's like the other big need that I see in like, right. And I'm even just getting into practical things like conferences. And of course, what changed during COVID and we're still figuring out what that looks like. So I don't know if there's like a, you know, a way we get through it somewhat briefly or not, but can we just agree that, man, the need for education and diversity is huge, but there's also this giant need for community and coming together in, you know, not only online and in person, but somehow if we don't crack that, I feel like we're going to kind of hold ourselves back as an industry and we're going to ultimately kind of like not, not, not give the world what it needs. 100%. And this, this is a challenge too, because the youngest generation through no fault of their own doesn't really know what it's, what it's missing here. Um, you know, before social media really took off, there were very kind of like concentrated and intense communities online, but also in person, right? So online for me, it was MoGraph.net, which is really where, you know, motionographer came from spending time there and talking to those people and learning from them. And in person, it was like Promax BDA and, and some of the big designs. I used to go to FITC all the time, still do. Everybody had their event, right? Um, and then social media came along and basically blew everything up. But in a weird way, like the, you, when you're on Instagram and you're scroll, scroll, scrolling, you're just looking at work and you're looking at work and you like, 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 you're not interacting with anybody. You're just in a little personal bubble and it's, it's dopamine rich 
but you're not interacting with anybody. And so you don't even realize that you're not, you're missing out on this community component. And Twitter is not great for this because it's noisy and negative and toxic. Um, and also not really visually oriented, I think enough uh, for us to have more interesting conversations. So, um, I'm really excited about, you know, in-person events coming back. Cause I think I just went to FITC Toronto and had an amazing time and saw a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was, it, it, it reaffirmed not just the importance of them, but like it reaffirmed my humanity in some like deep way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really want the younger, the newer generations to kind of get a taste of that and, and show them the importance of it. Because ultimately I think they're the ones who are going to have to architect the new communities as much as I want to. And I have ideas about it. And I know you do too. And we should pursue those ideas, by the way, we should try to build these things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to appeal largely to people who kind of already understand the value of community. I think there might be a whole new set of solutions that comes from a younger generation that probably doesn't look very valuable to us, but it'll be valuable to them. And so those two things need to happen, I think, side by side and, and in parallel. Um, I don't, I, but I don't see it. I haven't seen it really much. Yet. I, there was an interesting new social media network uh, called explore.family that, that just shuttered. It just closed its doors. And I was excited about it because it was kind of an alternative to Instagram. It was, um, there were no ads, no algorithms. Um, and, but it was, you know, it was two people trying to build it in their spare time and stuff. And so, and I think they were fairly new to business. And so maybe they didn't have all of it worked out. Um, but there is a real need for it. And I, I, I just, all I can say is trust me. <laughs> if you don't think it's important, like, trust me, it changes everything. It changes, it gives you a sense of purpose. No matter what you're doing, even if you're just animating logos for hospitals, it gives you a sense of purpose that a community gives you a sense of purpose that nothing else can, that nothing else can. You're not going to get that from a feed. You're not going to get that um, even from, you know, making amazing work on on your own. It's just, there's nothing like it. So I know you're thinking about stuff on these lines, and I really hope that you keep doing that. And and anybody listening, if you've got some idea you want to talk about, reach out to Joel, reach out to me, whatever. We gotta we gotta make it happen. <laughs> well I've seen I've seen glimpses, right, where like this community that uh inside Rev Think, where my in my work as a consultant, where we have this community that's grown. It started during COVID, but it's grown to be about five hundred fifty or so owners from all around the world. Private, very like it's super exclusive and and very highly relevant. And but I'm also like hungry to see now how are we going to get together in real life and what do we do there? And I'm continuing to push, push, push for that. But I'm almost kind of reminded of this idea goes back in my mind all the way back to early America. Did you ever, um, do you remember Alex de Tocqueville or Alexis de Tocqueville was like a, fr- a Frenchman who came over to America and he, he kind of published a book and said, I forget what the book title was, but it was like, here's why the American model works. And one of the things he observed was groups, clubs, right? Social gatherings, these, all these networks that America was building that made it, made it a thriving, you know, country. And in a way it's like, I, I, I'm, you were, as you were talking, it reminded me of that, that there's something about our industry that it, it, it's going to need that and humanity needs it. So we have to just continue to push for it. And I don't know, we're going to rediscover it, right? Because when I hear the Promax and this is in the NBA, uh, NABs and the, all that, that 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 way of doing it, I think, is sort of dying and fading. And there's something new that's emerging, and we have to be re- ready to embrace it and create it, and and so forth. So, I mean, I'm excited about what 
you guys are up to. Hopefully, you'll you can come back and announce something like. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right? we, you know, <laughs> I will say like because of Residence, which is the parent company that Buck created, and you know, part of that uh, group is um, it's nice that. And they have a long history of doing events in London, like local events in London. And um, they're really successful um, events. So we are expanding those around the world. We're going to start in New York. We'll do one in June. And then I'm sure they'll, they'll proliferate from there. And I'm really excited about that. We were just talking about this morning. And there's a lot of appetite just for us to do more of that. I also tell, and this is a super kind of privileged thing to say, but if, if young people can figure out how to do it, I always say live in New York for at least two to five years. And I specifically New York, nothing against any other city. But in New York, because of the density of that city, and just the way that it works with transportation and where all the studios are, you are going to, yeah, there's a scene and you can't avoid it. Like you will accidentally run into people that you work with that care about the same things you do. And you will get that value of community almost for free for living there, which is good because everything else there costs so much money. And that doesn't happen in LA where everything is, you know, you have to drive. It's very intentional. LA is essentially like the remote work thing where like you got to set it up. <laughs> you get, it's time boxed. You got to, you know, get on the road, get back to the time before, you know, before bed and all that. And that's cool. There's, there's value to that too. But I always say, yeah, go live in New York. Maybe London's the same way. I don't know, but New York certainly is. Um, Man, yeah, I'm just gonna, no, I, there's, I'm, there's I'm just exciting gonna, stuff. I'll just give you a hearty amen to that whole soapbox that you were just on. And be like, please, to, you know, to our generation and, and all the earlier generations, like, yes, there's a lot of wisdom there. Because if I had to do it over again, I would have started my career by spending a few years in New York. Yeah, I, I actually turned down a job at Apple. Um, I, I was a graduate intern there and they, I went well and they offered me a job, but I hadn't lived in New York yet. And I, I, I my wife and I, at the time we weren't married, but she also got offered a job and we thought, Wow, we got it in New York. We got it in New York. And so I'm really glad we did. I mean, nothing against Apple, but that was the smart move to make. You know, it was real. That was truly graduate school, you know, for us. Supercharged our careers, but also our personal lives as well. Melting pot is the word that's a phrase that's coming to my mind right now. Melting pot. Yeah, yeah. This has been so freaking cool. I it's been so fun to just like like spin you up and watch you go and see. <laughs> that's because I'm highly caffeinated. <laughs> no it's great i love your perspective and man it's so cool um we're not going to yet put the title of elder on you quite yet right you get you, you need a few more gray hairs like i have in my i don't head. know what is below <laughs> elder what is it's not junior there's gotta be something below elder uh, i don't know um, All right, call well, me, I'll, I'll be the water boy i'll just bring you i'll bring, I'll bring the elders <laughs> drinks right hey but you're gonna have to learn the cheers and you're gonna have to be more flexible <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> All right, dude. Thank, Thank you, you so much for the it's conversation. It's been so much fun. I want to tell you about a place to connect that you might not know about. It's our online community called Rev Community. It's a great place to get to know other creative business owners like yourself, to share some thought leadership and read other encouragement, to be challenged in this new marketplace, new technology ideas, economic trends, and it's a place to research. Check out many of the resources we have online, our videos, and of course, this podcast. Join us today at revthink.com slash community. If you're a creative studio owner, feel free to join us today at revthink.com slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.